Okay, um, if everybody can return to their seats, we'll continue with worship. So, uh, this evening's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 18, verses 15 to 27. So, John, chapter 18, verses 15 to 27. Uh, please follow along with me, either in your own Bible or on the screen. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of these man, this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire, because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I, what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon, was, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you fail, when you've done something really, really wrong or really, really bad, uh, what do you do with your failure? Uh, where do you typically go with it? There's a new TV show uh, that Amy and I have been watching, and I love this TV show. It's called The Selection. So the selection, it's on the History Channel, and essentially how it works is there are a number of civilians, and I say that with an asterisk, really, really fit civilians, uh, who go through the equivalent of Navy SEAL Hell Week. And so on this show, they have... Uh, again, all kinds of different uh, athletes, a lot of people that have just invested time in whether it be bodybuilding or CrossFit or different ways, uh, and you see who is actually mentally tough, who can actually hang in there despite uh, the suffering that they're enduring as they're going through uh, what is probably the hardest mental and physical test uh, known to man. Uh, after they weed out, uh, as they would say in the show, after they weed out the weak, they said their goal now is to weed out the strong. And on an episode that we recently watched, the title uh, of the episode was called Integrity. 
And so the test that these uh, civilians have to go through on the integrity episode is they're put through a pretty grueling workout. Uh, they're given different standards, and they know what they're to do and how they're to perform this workout. And they're told, hey, listen, this whole thing, it's not, we're not going to be there watching you. We want you to perform this workout as if we were there, uh, and let us know what your time is when you're done. So the whole thing is staged and set up, and what the participants don't know, what they're not aware of, is there are hidden cameras uh, that are watching, that are making sure every rep is performed to standard, that they actually do every rep that they are supposed to do. The class that entered in the selection started out with 30 people total. By this point, there were only six left in the class. Two people failed the integrity test. Now, the people that were failed the integrity test, they were given uh, an opportunity to essentially confess. Uh, the, the drill sergeants are there and they're saying, hey, listen, we know who you are. We know what you did, or should we say we know what you didn't do, uh, and this is kind of your last chance. You could confess and own up to it now, and it's going to be bad for you, but it probably will be worse if you don't. One of the contestants who failed, one of the contestants who didn't do uh, every rep that was prescribed to him, quickly owned up, quickly said, listen, I know that I, that I didn't do everything that I was supposed to. I was tired. I was exhausted. I really, really messed up. I'm sorry. The other, the other contestant who failed, who blatantly cheated, who did not do what was asked of him, uh, doubled and tripled down persisted in saying, no, I didn't do anything wrong. No, 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 you must be mistaken. No, 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 I am right. I promise you I'm right. The one who ultimately uh, confessed and owned up to doing wrong uh, was ultimately redeemed, and he was allowed to stay on the show. Now, the entire team had to make up the, work, the workout for him, but he was allowed to proceed and move on. The, the person who failed the integrity test, and not once but twice, the second time by not owning up to the wrong that he had done, he was, he was eventually kicked off the show. And so I ask you guys and I ask myself this, when you fail, what do you do? Are you like the one contestant who quickly owned up to his mistake? Who, who will go to the person that you failed, that, that you've wronged, and say, listen, I messed up, I am sorry? Or are you like the other contestant? The other contestant that no matter what evidence is being put before you, uh, no matter how persuasive somebody may be, you still want to insist that you are right. No, 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 listen, you don't get it. I am right, you're the wrong one. No, 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 I, I didn't mess up. Clearly you are misunderstanding my intentions or misunderstanding what I have done. This evening, uh, we're going to be looking at two disciples of Jesus, two disciples of Jesus who failed, who failed miserably, and one who will go on to find redemption, and one who would go on to only find destruction. We're going to be looking at the story of Judas, and then as Abby just read for us tonight, we're going to be looking at the story of Peter. And what we learn from both the lives of Judas and from the lives of Peter is this. We learn that Jesus is the safest place that we can go to with our failures. Jesus is the safest place that we can go to with our failures. All right, so the first person we're going to talk about whose story we're going to look at uh, is that of Judas. Judas. 
Now, we're not going to be in any just one scripture, but we're going to kind of retrace our steps throughout the Gospel of John uh, and see the few different places, um, really specific places, that Judas is mentioned. Uh, So, first off, let me go ahead and define this for us. What was the failure uh, that Judas had? Judas was ultimately far more concerned about his image than he was about his heart. One more time. Judas was more concerned about his image than he was about his heart. So, uh, as Amy and I are watching the show, The Selection, the entire time, based on, you know, uh, how fit somebody looks, based on the way that they present themselves, and do they seem like they're mentally tough, Amy and I are making bets the whole time on uh, who do we think is going to make it, Uh, who's going to get cut, who's going to last, and, and, you know, we're betting foot massages and all kinds of fun stuff. If we were, just from the outside looking in, Jesus has gathered his 12 disciples, and we were to take bets, who do we think is going to, you know, you know stay? Uh, who's going to make it? Who's going to do great things for Jesus and be a great disciple and a great apostle? Uh, I would go so far as to say the Vegas odds would have been on Judas. Vegas odds would have said, of all the disciples that are going to make it, of all the disciples, when we're looking from the outside in, that appear to have it together, it's Judas. Why would I say that? Why would I make, you know, kind of, a, kind of an out there statement? Both in my undergraduate uh, and in graduate school training to be a pastor, one of the things that uh, we were told kind of over and over and over again is there are two great things that you can't abuse. There are two great lines that you can't cross, and really if you cross these lines, you're probably going to disqualify yourself from ministry. One was having inappropriate relationships uh, with, with women. That was, probably, that was the first one. You can't, you can't screw that up. But the second one was mishandling money. We would have classes that talk about uh, how we have to be careful, how we have to protect ourselves, how we want to be as far removed from money and ministry as we possibly can so that there can never be an accusation. My professors would also go on to say, hey, whoever you have over your finances, the person that balances the checkbook, the person that's aware of all those things, they need to be of upright moral character. You need to trust them with your own family because in many ways, your ministry, your career, your job is dependent upon what they do with these things. Judas was selected to handle the money for Jesus' ministry. Now, what's kind of crazy about that is, you know, we could look at the 12 disciples of Jesus, and we could look at their makeup and background, and I think the obvious choice, well, who's probably most gifted uh, at handling finances? Well, the obvious and maybe, you know, answer would have been Matthew. Matthew himself was a tax collector, was he not? Yet again, for whatever standards, for whatever judgment, for whatever reason, Judas was chosen He was chosen to handle the money. And then we go on, and so we're going to look at a few different verses that that talk about Judas, and I believe there's a lesson for us to see. You see, Judas, again, he ultimately, he cared more about his image than about his heart. So very early on in Jesus' ministry, we could really kind of more or less place this in year one of his ministry, 
Jesus has just been teaching. Uh, he's performed some signs, and in John chapter 6, he's speaking to his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. And in John chapter 6, verse 70, he says this, Did I not choose you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil? Now, we don't get a whole lot of commentary, you know, but the whole time, every time that Jesus uh, even mentions, even infers that one of them is going to betray them, uh, we see the disciples, they don't know who it is. I would go so far as to say that even here in John chapter 6, I don't think Judas knows that Jesus is talking about him yet. A year into the ministry, uh, I do believe that Judas has probably already began uh, to do what the Scriptures will tell us he does. He begins to steal money from the ministry funds that Jesus and his 12 apostles happen, that they have. Now, I imagine at this point, only a year in, I don't think it was any significant amount that Judas uh, had stolen. You see, we're told that Jesus and his 12 disciples, they traveled and we told that as they traveled, things were not always easy. They weren't living a life of luxury. Jesus himself says, more often than not, I don't have a place to lay my head. Literally, when I go to bed at night, I do not have a bed to sleep on. We're told that there are plenty of times the disciples, they're hungry as they're going in ministry. All of this to say, they didn't have a whole lot of money. When I'm thinking about this point, about a year into their ministry, about a year of going through hardship, a year of traveling from town to town as Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, as Jesus is performing these disciples, I think Judas is probably starting to tell himself, well, you know what? I'm owed just a little bit more than everybody else. You see, I, I'm doing the same stuff they're doing. I'm traveling. Uh, I, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm doing the things that Jesus wants me to, but on top of that, I have to handle all the finances. I have to do all of this extra work, more so than everybody else is doing. We're not told any of this, and we don't know exactly, but I imagine the first time Judas stole from the ministry pot, it was something to make his life just a little bit easier. I don't think it was exorbitant. I don't think, you know, he bought himself a fancy robe while the rest of the disciples are wearing homespun. I don't think that's what's going on here, but perhaps he got himself an extra glass of wine. Perhaps he got himself a snack when everybody else uh, was, was struggling and was hungry. Did I not choose you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And again, I don't think that Judas thinks that it's himself at this point. Haven't we all been there? We've heard a sermon, or we've heard a teaching, or we've heard that type of thing, and we've immediately gone to and thought, well, surely, you know, that actually doesn't apply to me. You know, there's people out there who have it a lot worse than I have. I think that's what Judas is going, that what is going through Judas's head in John chapter 6. One of you is a devil. Well, what I've done, it's, you know, not worth it to be calling it devil. I haven't done anything that bad. Uh, you know, I'm doing this all for Jesus. I'm actually looking pretty good. Uh, as I'm going about doing these things. Judas was more concerned about his image than he was his heart. And then we can fast forward two years later. Uh, again, we're not given a whole lot more details from John chapter 6 to John chapter 12 about Judas and, and what he's been doing or about what he hasn't. But in John chapter 12, it's made explicit this whole time Judas has been stealing. 
this whole time, Judas has been taking money. And at this point, here in John chapter 12, I do believe that we see he's out of control. Uh, at this point here in John chapter 12, I, I think we even see that, that uh, Judas's actions, they're almost like that of an addict. What do I mean? In John chapter 12, uh, there's a woman that we're told does a wonderful and, and kind and, and careless, uh, uh, selfless thing. That's what I meant to say, a selfless thing for Jesus. She has um, a bottle of oil that would have been worth a lot of money. It would have been a family heirloom, and it would have been, uh, again, uh, worth a lot of money. And she breaks it, and she anoints Jesus' body, preparing him for burial. This was an act of devotion. This was an act of worship. But again, here, Judas, again, like I said, I believe he's starting to become a little out of control. What does he do? He says, listen, you know, why would you waste that money? We could have taken, we could have taken that bottle of perfume, that bottle of oil that you just broke and poured on Jesus. We could have sold it, and we could have fed the poor. We could have got 300 denarii. Do you know what we could have done for others with that money? you would waste it on Jesus? Can you see the manipulation? Can you see the suggestion that he's getting out there? He's actually trying to still protect his image. He's not making it about him at all. It's about the poor, right? We want to care for the poor, but we know Judas has been stealing. And whatever number it is, he's imagining, look how much I just lost out on. So as I confront this fact, as I kind of, you know, complain about the fact that I, you know, have just been robbed, what I would have liked to have had, some extra, I'm still going to protect my image. I'm still going to make sure that even as I confront this and address this, I'm going to make it look like I'm, you know, I have nothing but uh, altruistic motivations. Judas cares about his image more than his heart. Finally, and I believe this is a really, really significant place where Judas's story, well, literally it does come to a conclusion, but I think it reveals so much of the inner turnings uh, of Judas's heart and, and what he cares about and why he cares about it. After uh, Judas betrays Jesus, we don't really hear about him again in the Gospel of John. But in Matthew 27, we see uh, that Judas actually has a, a really shocked attitude. He's shocked that Jesus is being arrested. He's shocked that Jesus is being put on trial. He's shocked that Jesus is going to be crucified and put to death. Now, we know that Judas is the betrayer. He's the one that sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, more of, a, again, the addiction that he's been feeding for so long in such a secret way. Why would he be shocked when the very thing he set out to do actually begins to be accomplished? Well, many commentators, they, they believe, you know, that actually the fact that Judas is so surprised that he tries to take it all back in Matthew 27 well, they're not trying to say that he actually had good motives in doing this. No, but again, Judas is all about his image. For a while now, the people have been saying they, they're in Jerusalem. They've been saying, you know, this is the Jewish Messiah. As we've been preaching through the Gospel of John, we've been talking about how when people say that, that Jesus is the Messiah, they had expectations about what the Messiah was going to do. Namely, he was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to overthrow those who had been oppressing God's people. 
but Jesus hasn't been doing it. Jesus has been talking about how he is going to go to the cross, how he is going to die. So between kind of all of this evidence put together, what some commentators believe Judas's ultimate motivation was he was trying to force the issue. You are the Jewish Messiah. You are powerful. You do have the ability and the right to overthrow these people and establish your kingdom, and I'm going to be right along riding your coattails. Uh, when you, if you are king, I'm going to be your grand vizier. I'm going to be your number one man, the one who's responsible for the finances of the kingdom, except for it didn't go according to his plan. You see, instead of raising up a sword and overthrowing the Romans, Jesus allows himself to be pierced by the sword and destroyed by the Romans, destroyed for people like you and me and Judas and Peter. And when Judas no longer had a coattail to ride, the thing that he most cared about, his own image, it was ultimately destroyed. You see, the disciples, I mean, don't get me wrong, they all betrayed Jesus in their own way, but this was a big one. Judas went and literally sold Jesus out, so he knows, he knows that he lost his image with the disciples. And then this kingdom that Judas is imagining, what will it be like, you know, for me to be uh, the one in charge of all the finances over the Messiah's king? Well, that's not being established, not the way that he thought it was going to be. Therefore, he put all of his eggs in one basket, and that basket broke and crumbled. And now Judas is left with nothing. He cared far more about his image than he did his heart. And then we're told in Matthew 27, that he would go on in order to relieve himself from the shame that he's experiencing, in order to relieve himself uh, from the guilt that he's experiencing, in order to, to end the suffering that he's going through because of the wrong that he's been doing for over three years and keeping it secret and keeping it safe, he goes and destroys the image of God. He goes and commits suicide believe the story of Judas. I believe the way that he lived his life, specifically all these secrets, I think that it should be a lesson to us all. As a story Presbyterian church, I ask you, what are the secret places in your heart? What are the secret places in your life where you're trying to protect your own image? May it be how you spend your money. Could it be where you go to on the internet? Perhaps uh, what you say about people behind your back. What are you afraid? What are you afraid of that if somebody else knew, if they understood this part of me, if they were aware of it, uh, I would no longer be the same. My image would be destroyed. May we learn from Judas, may we learn from Judas this, that the secret places, the hiding places that we try to go to with our sin, they will never ultimately do what they are meant to do. They will never ultimately conceal the way that we want them to conceal, and ultimately they will never give us the image that we desperately long for. Hiding your failure is not safe. But Jesus is safe. He is the safest place to go to with your failure. 
So we learn from Judas in some ways what not to do. We don't hide our failure. And from Peter, we learn this main lesson. We learn that the safest place to go to with our failure is Jesus. So let's look at uh, Peter's story. So going back to this kind of idea, this analogy of if we're betting on which disciples uh, are going to make it and do great things for for Jesus and for his kingdom, uh, Peter would have been long odds. Not a lot of people, you know, looking at Peter's pedigree, uh, looking at, frankly, uh, during the ministry uh, of Jesus, looking at some of the things that Peter did and said, you know, long odds that Peter would be the rock that Christ was build, would build his church on. He wasn't as qualified as many of the disciples. Uh, he was a man of modest means, modest character. And again, when we look at uh, the mistakes that he makes, we learn that that uh, Peter ha- himself has a lot to learn. So we're not going to go into every single one of these mistakes and snafus and misunderstandings that are presented in the Gospels that characterize Peter, but there were plenty. You see, the greatest of Peter's mistakes, that's the one that, that we're going to look at uh, this evening. That's the one that Abby read for us just a little bit ago. You see, the greatest mistake that Peter made, it was predicted by Jesus multiple times. Peter protested and said this will never actually happen multiple times. And this mistake, just as Judas's mistake, it still serves as a lesson for us today. What was Peter's arguably his greatest failure? It was denying Jesus. So where we're at at this point in the text, in John chapter 18, uh, Jesus has been arrested. We learned last week how, how he used his power for the greater good of his friends, for his disciples. Uh, he traded himself in so that his disciples may flee and escape and go to safety. And even that, though, was a betrayal to their Lord. So Jesus being arrested... He begins to be escorted to the private home uh, of the patriarch over the religious leaders, Annas. They get to Annas's private home, and, and his home would have been much larger uh, than most Jewish people's homes at the time, because we're told that he has a courtyard, and a servant girl is guarding the way into his courtyard. Jesus is escorted into there, and, and John, we do believe that he's the disciple that is not named here in this text, he's welcomed into the courtyard, and then he kind of goes out of his way to sneak Peter in. So John and Peter both, they've ran away, you know, but now they're still trying to see how is this going to play out, uh, what is going to happen to Jesus. So as Jesus late into the evening is escorted in, Peter and John, in some way they're both present, they're both inside of this courtyard, and then Annas and some of his cronies are there, and they begin to, uh, they begin to prosecute Jesus. And as they're prosecuting Jesus, Peter is denying Jesus. Peter trying to make himself look small. Peter trying to be um, out of the way and not really noticed by many. Uh, enters near with the fire where there are other guards, the guards of Annas's house, where they're standing by. And I imagine Peter is probably trying to look at Jesus, maybe out of his peripheral, out of the corner of his eye. And Jesus is being accused again and again and again. And Jesus is standing up for everything that he's been doing. He doesn't deny the truth. 
Meanwhile, Peter is there and, and not once, not twice, but three times denies that he even knows Jesus. Three times, standing next to this charcoal fire, he denies that Jesus is his Lord. One commentator puts it like this, Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. First Timothy 5.24, it tells us this, that the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. The sins of others that appear later, that's like Judas. He kept his sins secret, he kept his sins hidden, and eventually they led to his ruin and his destruction. But Peter, Peter's like this first guy. Peter's like the one where his sins, they're right before him. The rest of the Gospels, they describe that as the rooster crows after the third time uh, Peter denies Jesus. They describe that he feels such great shame, that he feels such great remorse for what he has done, that he literally begins to weep bitter tears. He fails, and he fails really bad. Judas betrays Jesus that he may protect his own image, that he may rise with his own image, and he, and he betrays Jesus, that he may have more money. Peter denies Jesus to protect himself. In some ways, we could even say similar to, to Judas, to protect his own image, or, or at least to keep himself alive. Both of these disciples fail. And I, both of these disciples fail in significant ways. I don't believe that we can look at Judas or Peter and say, uh, you know, one was so much worse than the other. I believe that they are both comparable. But what sets these two disciples apart is what they do with their failure. You see, it is nearly this exact same setting, the very same setting, very same circumstances, uh, that, that Peter denies Jesus, that Jesus will again recreate this scene later uh, at the end of the Gospel of John to ultimately restore Peter. There's this Greek word that describes a charcoal fire, and it's very rare. It's not used hardly at all in the New Testament, but we do see these two very specific instances. It's used describing the charcoal fire that Peter is standing around when he denies Jesus three times. And then it's used again at the end of the Gospel of John to describe the fire that Jesus himself prepares as he redeems Peter, as he draws Peter back into a relationship. You see, despite what Peter would try to do, there was no stopping Jesus from doing the work of his Father. It was for people like Judas, people like Peter, people like you and me, that Jesus would go to the cross. Because we are all failures in our own way. Scripture tells us this, that there, uh, there is no one who has not sinned, not even one. We are all guilty and we are all deserving of judgment because of our failures. And it was for this that Jesus went to the cross. After Jesus went to the cross and, and bore the burden and, and paid the penalty for Peter's sins, for Judas's sins, and even for yours and I's sins, Jesus rose again. And it's this setting, uh, the resurrected and victorious Jesus, who is now redeeming Peter, 
who is now restoring Peter. Abby helped me out with this one uh, in her book. But you could imagine, uh, Peter, there was a lot that was on his shoulders. Again, he was to be the rock that was going to, that Christ was going to build his church on, but now he has failed in such an extraordinary way. Can that still be true? And the end of the Gospel of John tells us that, yes, it still is true, that ultimately it comes down to not the fact if you fail, but when you fail, what will you do with it? And so at the same charcoal fire, Jesus gives Peter a second chance. Jesus draws out uh, the, the confession from Peter's heart. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. Peter denies Jesus three times. Then recreating the same setting, Jesus pursues Peter, and Jesus calls Peter to affirm him three times. Ultimately, this is an act of confession. Peter is going and saying that, no, my sin is not safe. I can't keep it secret any longer. The only place that I can go to with my failure, the only place that I can go and, and actually have any chance of redemption or restoration, Jesus, it's to you. And that's exactly what Peter does. We see here at the end of the Gospel of John. Judas continues to choose himself, so much so that then rather than humble himself and repent of his sin, he chooses to take matters into his own hands and relieve himself the only way that he knows how to take his own life. Peter finds a greater safety. Peter finds a greater haven. He finds a better person to go to with his failure, and that is Jesus. Uh, I had a friend um, at a church that I worked at a number of years ago, uh, and this friend carried a secret for years and years and years, and it was a really, really big secret. Um, this was a secret that this friend had swore, uh, I will never tell anybody. I will literally go to the grave with this secret. And then the circumstances would come about that um, this friend would confess the sin that they had struggled with for so long uh, to a group of us who are present. And again, rather than finding condemnation, rather than finding judgment upon confessing uh, this, this failure, and it was, a big, it was a big failure. It was a failure that marked my friend's life for many, many years. Uh, my friend actually found us welcoming. My friend actually found a place where we were able to remind my friend of the gospel. We were able to talk to my friend how this was the very reason that Jesus went and died. You don't need to conceal this any longer. You don't need to hide it. That is not a good place for this anyways. The better place to go to is in Jesus. And if you know you're good with him, the God of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, then you know you can go to others. You know you can go to those whom you have wronged. You know that you can go to those who, who were a part of this failure, and you could do that because Jesus says, I don't judge you. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Jesus says, the verdict is in, and because of what I have done on the cross for you, I name you righteous. I name you beloved. You are good with me. 
And so just as there is a lesson to learn from Judas, namely this, that hiding our failure is never going to be safe, there's a lesson that we can learn from Peter. Jesus is the safest place that we can go to with our failures. And so Story Presbyterian Church, I think the final things that we learn from this story of Peter's greatest mistake in his life and in his ministry, we learn this, that if you are struggling, if you have a secret sin or a secret failure, something you have been holding back with for a long time, I encourage you, I plead with you, not even, not, not for my sake, not as if, you know, I want to know all the stuff that's going on in your heart and in your lives, although I do want to know these things, but would you be willing, would you be willing to go to a trusted friend, perhaps me, perhaps a pastor, perhaps Abby or another leader here at church, and would you be willing, would you be willing to confess Because here's the thing, as followers of Jesus, uh, not only are we called to go and confess our sins that we may be healed, James 5 tells us this, but we are called to be the type of people uh, that others can come to. See, here's the thing, you know, you can tell me, Lord willing, you could tell me the worst thing that you have ever done, and I'm not going to look at you and say, you know, how could you? How dare you? That's awful. But in some way, shape, or form, I'm going to be able to look at you and say, me too. Isn't it a good thing that we have a Jesus who went to the cross for us? Can I encourage you? Would you encourage me? Can we follow after him together? May we be the type of people who are quick to confess our failures, to run to the safe arms of Jesus when we fail. But may we also be the type of people that are opening, that are safe, that those who have struggled with failure feel welcome to come to. May we be the people who flee to the safe arms of Jesus with our failures. Let's pray.